Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. Beginning of verse 36. 1938, Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel sold the rights to a comic strip character that they had created. It's a character Superman. They sold it to their publisher. And the trademark today for Superman is worth over a billion dollars. They sold it for $130. $65 each. 1888, John Pemberton, who invented a, a formula for a beverage, Coca-Cola. He sold that to Asa Chandler. Chandler built that formula into an empire. It's worth $78 billion today. Pemberton sold it for $550. 1886, a prospector, Soares Harzen, sold his South African gold claim. Over the next 90 years, the mines that were sunk on his claim or near his claim would yield over a million kilograms of gold a year, about 70% of the gold of the Western world. Trillions of dollars worth of gold. He sold his claim for $20. The point is, sometimes we possess something that is worth far more than we realize. Prayer is our treasure. It's better than gold. Better than Coke. Better than Superman. Prayer is the most valuable treasure we possess. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can enter into the very presence of God and communicate with the creator of the universe. And so often we forget the value of this possession. Jesus understood the value of this possession, and so he prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. He prayed like no one had ever prayed before, because he understood its value. So why do we struggle so deeply to pray? We make great resolutions, and we make plans, and we listen to sermons, and talks, and maybe even go to conferences just on prayer, but we still struggle to actualize it, to move forward, to grow in prayer. Why is that? Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at a few of the reasons why we struggle. One is that we simply don't understand what prayer is. It just really hasn't sunk deeply into our hearts that God has given us the privilege to enter into his presence, that Jesus, through his suffering and death, purchased a way that we could actually, with confidence and boldness, enter the presence of God and tell him anything and everything. That when we pray, Jesus is alongside of us with the Father and he's speaking to the Father on our behalf and the Spirit is translating because we really don't know what to say. And so Spirit and Son and Father are having this conversation about us and for us. But we don't see it happening and so it's so difficult for us because we're, we're creatures of sight and touch. And prayer is an act of faith. So we struggle. We struggle because we've been disappointed in prayer. We have asked for something and we didn't get what we want, when we wanted it. And that makes us mad and frustrated and discouraged and disappointed. And we're wondering what dynamics are going on in this Trinitarian conversation that we don't get what we want. For some of us, we simply have not been taught to pray. Maybe the greatest deficiency in our churches is that we don't train one another to pray. The church's responsibility is to make disciples, teaching one another to obey all that Christ commanded, teaching one another to follow the model of Jesus Christ. That's why the church is here. Make disciples, share the gospel, and build people into mature followers of Jesus Christ. But so often in our curriculum, we don't train one another how to pray. It should be fundamental. 
but we don't. Fourth, oftentimes we simply do not realize how much we need to pray. We've been doing a series on prayer focused on uh, the prayer life of Jesus, prayers of Jesus, and the logic that we've been following is simply this. If Jesus needed to pray, chances are prayer would do us some good as well, right? And we should be looking at Jesus. If anyone knew how to pray, it was probably the Son of God. He had spent all of eternity having a conversation with God, probably knew how to do it well. Let's look at Jesus. And if Jesus needed to do it, then certainly we need to do it. Last week, Blake brought you through John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer on our behalf, on behalf of his disciples then, but then also all who would believe in subsequent generations. Before that, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, or what I like to call the Disciples' Prayer, this model prayer that Jesus gave to his followers. This morning, we're going to look at the prayer in Gethsemane. I think that the prayer in Gethsemane is possibly the most important prayer in Scripture. It is the prayer that prepares Jesus for intense warfare. And Gethsemane is is warfare prayer. It's preparation for war. Jesus anticipates this warfare that he is about to go in to with the adversary, the devil. And he prepares himself through prayer. He warns his disciples to get prepared as well. Of course, they miss the point. They ignore that. And so Jesus emerges triumphant and the disciples fail miserably. And so we're going to look at both of them. Both Jesus' preparation and the disciples' lack of preparation and what we can learn from that. So I want you to read with me beginning Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. The Garden of Gethsemane, I believe, marks a, a pivotal point in this epic conflict between good and evil. The conflict actually began in another garden. It began in the Garden of Eden. You recall that God's intention was to exercise dominion over this earth, but to do it through men and women. He created man and woman in his own image, and he said, you alone among all my creatures can rule on my behalf and represent me. And so I want you to exercise dominion over the beasts of the field and over all of the earth, over the crops, over everything. Rule on my behalf. That was God's intention, God's plan, to rule through men and women, to establish his kingdom on earth through these representatives. And because of that, Satan stepped in. Because he did not love God or even like God, he hated God, and he hated God's intention and God's program, and so he went after mankind. To crush mankind, to destroy God's plan. And so he came and he tempted Eve, he deceived Eve. Adam was complicit, he willingly went along. They sinned, they rebelled. They bought into his lie that they didn't need to remain under submission to God, that they could rule God's dominion independently from God. And so they fell and they sinned. And God predicted, he said, now you have set up a conflict that is going to wage warfare within humanity for the entire history of the earth. In fact, you can look at the history of the earth and really understand it and explain it as this conflict between Satan and all who follow him And those from among humanity that choose to follow God. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will have conflict. And that conflict will go on and on and on and on. God will choose representatives out of families 
to live for him and on his behalf. And Satan will tempt others to follow him and they will fight and they will quarrel and they will try to destroy one another. God also predicted, though, that one day he would send the one. He would send one seed, one who would come from woman, one man. He would be the one. And through him, we would have victory over the dominion of darkness. Conflict was begun in the Garden of Eden. It is working its way out. And it reaches a pivotal point here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus realizes that conflict is coming to a head. And so he prepares himself to do battle with Satan. I want you to look with me at his preparation, chapter 26 and verse 39. It says, Jesus went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I want to set the stage for you this morning a little bit. This is one of the most intense moments in the entire Bible. Jesus has just finished a Passover meal with his disciples. It's late at night. According to the law, they had to begin the meal after dark. And according to Eastern tradition, that meal went on a long time. Okay? There was no fast food. They didn't just drive through, grab a little bit of lamb, and chow down, and then finish and move on. This, this meal went on for literally hours. Hours of preparation. Hours of eating. Hours of drinking. Hours of fellowship and conversation. I got a glimpse into this years ago when I was eating a meal with one of my graduate student friends, Sayat. Uh, I set up a lunch with Sayat, and when I arrived at his house, I said, Sayat, um, how long do you think we'll be going? Because I, I've got a couple appointments later on this afternoon. And he looked at me, and he just, he just kind of smiled, and he shook his head, and he said, Brian, you should never make appointments after lunch with me, because we're, we're going to eat, and then we're going to walk, and then, then we're going to talk, and we might eat some more, and then we might talk some more, and then when we're done, we'll be finished. And then he said, you Americans, you're in such a hurry. Let's just enjoy being with one another. The meal is an excuse to be with one another. And so this meal began after dark and it went on for hours. It's probably midnight by the time Jesus gets up and he takes his his disciples to the garden. They are tired. They They are exhausted. A long day of preparation. A long day of eating and drinking. Many glasses of wine. They're worn out. They just want to go to bed. And Jesus says, no, let's go and pray. And he takes them to the garden of Gethsemane. This is the traditional site of that garden. A lot of the traditions in Israel, you know, you just don't know. You don't know. Are you, you know, you're actually looking at these stones that David threw at Goliath. You know, probably not, even if the tour guide says so. But <laughs> this, is, this is quite likely on or near the site of the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. Literally, it means olive press. Jesus went into what was probably a, a walled olive grove. A private place owned by somebody who sympathized with Jesus and his followers and his teachings. It was on the Mount of Olives. Olives covered this area, but it was a small area. And so here Jesus came and it was his tradition to come to this place. Disciples knew this place. Now to give you a sense of perspective, this is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, looking toward the Temple Mount. Obviously, the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome there, was not there at that point in time. Islam wouldn't emerge for hundreds of years later. But this is the eastern gate of the Temple Mount. They would have been within sight of the temple itself. A Sabbath day's journey, in other words, it was 15, 20 minutes walk, maybe. Traditional site of the upper room was around the south end. 
They probably would have walked around the city, down through the garden, down through the Kidron Valley, and up into the Garden of Gethsemane, within sight of the temple itself. When they went there, Judas knew where to find them. Luke tells us this was Jesus' custom. This is where he went. When he finished a meal and he wanted to pray, where did he go? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas didn't hesitate. He didn't search all around town. He took him straight to this place. And I want you to imagine for a minute that it's completely dark. There's no lights whatsoever. There may be candles here and there and torches here and there. But it's pretty much utterly and completely dark. Jesus knows that they're coming after him. Because his father has told him. But he also knows that they're coming after him because he sees them. We're told in John that a cohort comes after Jesus. That's 600 men. 600 men. A large crowd, we are told, followed the chief priests. Hundreds and hundreds of men with spears and clubs and torches walking down from probably the north end of the Temple Mount down through the valley. Jesus can look out from the Garden of Gethsemane and he sees his fate coming at him. And he knows because the Father has told him. And he is in intense anguish. And so he pulls his disciples aside with him. He says to his 11, would you come aside with me so that we can pray? He leaves the 11 and he takes the three and he says, pray with me. Pray with me. We get a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to be alone in this moment. I need my 11 closest friends and I need among those the three who have been with me the most that we have spent so much time together. Would you three please watch with me? Come with me. Pray with me. I need you. When you're in intense spiritual struggle, do you actually ask for help? I'll tell you, a lot of times I don't because I'm just too proud. Remember a few weeks ago I asked you, how's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Whenever I ask that question, I, I don't have anybody say, my prayer life is just great. <laughs> I'm so good. Couldn't be better. Actually, I'm skipping the sermon because I, I, don't, I don't need to learn anything about prayer, right? I don't get that answer ever until I actually asked the question. Then after the 915 service, the first time I said that, a friend of mine that I've known almost 30 years, he came up to me and said, Brian, ask me how my prayer life is. I said, okay, I'll play. How's your prayer life? He said, my prayer life is great. I have a great prayer life. And this is why I have a great prayer life. Because God has crushed me. He said, life has crushed me. Circumstances in my life have crushed me. And I know how desperately I need God. Absolutely, every moment of every day, I pray all the time. I love to pray. My prayer life is great and it's getting better all the time. Why? Because he was humble. We see Jesus' humility here. He says, even though he is God in human flesh, would you please come and be with me? I need you. But I also need to do business alone with God. So you three, you wait here. And he goes before the Father and he prays. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face. And he prayed saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away again a second time and he prayed saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he left them again and he went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, Father, that's what I long for, but your will be done. And we see in Jesus the incredible honesty that he has before the Father. Father, this is not what I want. I long for something else. I don't want to live through these circumstances. We see his honesty. We see his persistence. He goes back time after time after time. And he says, Father, I'm asking the same thing. Here I am again, please. But ultimately what we see is his submission. I believe that this is the most powerful prayer in the entire Bible because Jesus makes himself utterly and completely at the disposal of the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. So what was his request specifically? What was Jesus asking? He said, take this cup from me. Well, in the Old Testament, the cup was the cup of the anger of God. Isaiah 51, you have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. The cup in the Old Testament was God's wrath against sin. God hates sin. Why? Because he's utterly and absolutely and perfectly holy. The cup is the wrath of God against sin. We see the same concept in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 16. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Jesus is praying, God... I don't want your wrath on me. God, I've always lived in perfect fellowship with you. I don't want the wrath of all of the sins of every person that ever has lived, every person that will live. I don't want that to fall on me because I know what that will mean is separation because you are perfectly and utterly holy. God, that terrifies me. And it terrifies me to think of the pain and the suffering that I will have to go through in anticipation of that moment when I am separated, bearing the sins of the world. God, is there any other way that you can get your will done other than me bearing your wrath? And what is God's answer? No. 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 Luke, we get a sense of the intensity of Jesus' request. It says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I don't think that Jesus literally bled. I, I think that it's, the language says it's an analogy. It says, Jesus prayed and he prayed so intensely as he fell on his face that he began to just break out in sweat and the sweat beat it up on his forehead and he began to pour sweat onto the ground because he was such, in such incredible anguish. Writer of the Hebrews gives us a glimpse into this. It says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. So here's Jesus over in one corner of the garden, and he's crying, and he's screaming, and and sweat is pouring off of his face, and his disciples are doing what? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. But notice what he says here. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. God heard his prayer. God said, yes, I hear your prayer. And the answer is what? No. No. There's more to the answer, though. I told him Luke 22. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. God said, no, but let me send you an angel. No. You cannot have what you are requesting. 
but I will send you angelic help. On the other hand, you can have what you're requesting because you said, my will be done. I will give you my will. I will give you my perfect will. So, question we all struggle with, why does God say no? Not just why did he say no to Jesus, why does he say no to us sometimes? Let me give you a few reasons. First, unconfessed sin. This obviously was not Jesus' issue, right? But for us, sometimes God says no because we have sin in our lives that we simply have not confessed. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? We enter into a relationship with God the moment that we believe Jesus Christ died for our sins. When we believe that, the debt of sin is removed forever. We have eternal life. We are secure. God is our Father, and we can call out to him, Abba, Father, here I am. We belong to him. Will we enjoy that fellowship? Not if we have sin in our lives that we are clinging to and we are refusing to confess. That will hinder the fellowship. That will hinder the communication. David says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, that is, I cling to my sin, then the Lord will not hear my prayer. Another very interesting verse in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3. You husbands, specifically, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Are your prayers hindered, husbands? Let's take a moment and confess. <laughs> maybe, maybe, right? Earthly relationships that are broken, that we are not honoring others as we should honor them, as co-heirs of the grace of life, can hinder our relationship, our communication with God. It's not that he doesn't actually hear because he is omniscient and he is omnipresent, but he's not responding. Sometimes it's unconfessed sin. Sometimes God simply has better timing. God says no because what's coming is so much better. And you can't see that, but I can. And you must trust. You must trust. That is the essence of our walk with God, that we trust God in spite of the fact that we don't see. We trust that he does see and that he's good. In spite of the way we might interpret our circumstances, God is good. Third reason, God is drawing us into increased intimacy. He wants us to learn to persist in prayer and to come back and to come back and to come back and to come back. Because when we come back with the same request over and over and over again, God is getting more time with us. And he has the opportunity to draw us into fellowship. He has the opportunity to bend our will toward his. He has the opportunity for his spirit to speak truth in our lives and transform our character. And sometimes we just don't get in that mode until we are desperate and we have to just keep coming back because we need something so badly from God. Fourth, sometimes God is just trying to create greater glory in our lives. And, and again, we just can't see that. that. That's what's happening in the garden. If Jesus had gotten his way, what his humanity wanted in that moment of anguish, then we would still be dead in our sins. And all of humanity would forever be dead in their sins and transgressions, separated from God. But because Jesus was willing to relinquish his own will to the will of the Father, a greater glory was accomplished. A greater glory was accomplished. So sometimes God says no. Let's look for a moment at the disciples now. And their preparation or lack of preparation. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 40. It says, Jesus came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, 
So you men could not keep watch for me with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. A few observations I want to make about the disciples. First is that they disregarded Jesus' warning. The verb used here is gregoreo in Greek. It means watch, keep alert, be vigilant, stay on your guard. We get the name Gregory from this. It's my middle name. I wish I were better at it, but I'm not. You know, I think maybe it was my parents' hope. (laughs) Be on the alert. Stay on guard. Watch. It's a present tense imperative, and it's important to notice this. Don't give you a lot of grammar on a Sunday morning, but it means this. Watch and keep on watching. Pray and keep on praying. Because the price that we pay for spiritual victory is eternal vigilance. Watch, watch, watch. Pray, pray, pray. And don't stop. Be on your guard. But they disregard Jesus' warning. Have you ever done that? found some good visual illustrations of this. I, I really like this picture. Please do not go beyond this point. And what I love about that is everyone is beyond the point, right? I mean, the, the trail is well-worn beyond the point. Probably a little Roman 7 going on here. Another one that I thought was good. Do not climb, play on or around the pipe. Again, Romans 7, you know, if, it, if it's got to be a good thing to do. The warning is ignored. And one other image that I really loved, caution, no warning signs for the next three miles. You know, I, I, the implication of that is, Next three miles, you're on your own. We're not going to warn you. And what I love about the sign is that there are bullet holes in it. (laughs) Not only do we ignore when God says stop or slow or turn, we say, to hell with that. Right? We're going to do what we want to do. And the disciples say, look, we're beat. We had to go early and find the place to eat and get the meal set up and Get our feet washed. And, you know, I mean, it was rough. We had a rough evening. Jesus, we're tired. And they ignore him. And they ignore his, his emotional plea. Please be with me. Please watch and pray with me. Second, they ignored the enemy's intentions for them. Look back just a few verses in chapter 26 and verse 30. They finished the meal. And then they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All of the disciples said exactly the same thing as well. Jesus said, you, You're missing it. Peter, and really not just Peter, Peter but, but all of you, 11, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has demanded permission to shred you 
And God said, yes. This is exactly what transpired with Job. Job asked permission, may, may, I, may I test your servant? Mm-hmm. Here are the limits to the testing, but yes, you may. Satan said, may, I'm, I want to go after your followers. I want to go after the 11. I want to sift them like we can. I want to shred them. Because I think that they will be disloyal to you. I think that Job will be disloyal to you. I think that these men will, I think they'll be disloyal to you. I want to I test them. The testing is that we would be disloyal to Jesus. Our adversary has come only to kill, steal, destroy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, wake up. Wake up. Satan wants to tempt you and test you so that you will be disloyal to Jesus Christ. That you will live for yourself. That you will live for this world. That you will love this world more than you love the kingdom of God. That you will not set the kingdom of God first in your life. And you might do that for, through just crazy, foolish, foolish, immoral living or just by being a nice, good American who loves this world. And everybody looks in and says, wow, how nice and kind and successful that person is. But you don't live for the kingdom of God. Satan wants to sift you like weak and he's going to come after you in one way or the other to make you disloyal to the kingdom of God so that God's kingdom isn't first in your life. And he is coming after each and every one of you. Christ's exhortation to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane applies to us today. Keep watching. Keep praying. Your adversary, the devil, he is on the prowl. He is like a roaring lion. He's looking. Who can I devour today? Who can I sift today? Who can I crush today? And if you ignore it and you sleep, you will get crushed. The outcome is predictable. Third, they overestimated their own resolve. Turn back just a few chapters in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20, it is important to note that this little interchange happens immediately after Jesus has told them that he's going to be crucified, right? He's just told them, I'm going to be crucified and rise from the dead. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons and bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. You know, I, and I, you know, I love this setting. It's just, it's just ridiculous that mom came. I just, I laugh every time I read it, but it's tragic because it's us, right? But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. And now he turns and he speaks in the plural. He is looking at James and John. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are. We are able. We can handle it. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. That we will drink the cup. Not the cup of the wrath of God against sin that Jesus alone bore. But the suffering of being identified with Jesus. He said, well, you will. You will. But after you fail. See, resolve is not enough. Anybody in here ever made a resolution? A couple. Broken a resolution? Think about these three. Peter, James, and John. The privileged three. They were pulled aside. A special healing is about to take place. And I can't fit everybody in the room. You three, come with me. Mount of Transfiguration, you're going to get a little preview of what I look like when I'm in glory. 
And they go and they see Moses, wow, and Elijah, and Jesus shining radiant in glory. They don't know what to say, so Peter talks. Right? I mean, it's just stunning. It's like, whoa, you got to be kidding me. This is amazing. This is the mountaintop of mountaintop experiences. It's a high. And, and we say to ourselves, look, if we had been there, man, we never would have failed. We never would be disloyal. If I had an experience like that, I would not fail. And you know what? You would. You would. A mountaintop doesn't resolve to make you sinless and loyal forever. It is day by day by day. Intimacy with God in particular, where you are going to him in prayer and you are utterly and completely honest and you are utterly and completely submissive. The reason that Jesus succeeded and the disciples failed is because Jesus said, your will be done. This is the most powerful prayer in the Bible. Satan cannot touch you when every area of your life is in submission to God. But your resolve will fail. Your willpower will fail. Your mountaintop experiences will fade And they will not carry you forever. Think of the Israelites who saw Moses go on top of the mountain and they saw the glory. And they saw the lightning and the thunder. And they saw this amazing thing. And they got bored. Maybe Moses has died. Aaron, could you make us a new God? Make us a a calf or something and take us back to Egypt. We'll just leave Moses as he is. Those experiences are not powerful enough. To take us through the day by day by day by day grind. But moment by moment submission of our entire wills. That is the prayer that Satan cannot touch. He cannot touch us. Thy will be done. So how do we get to that point? How do we stay alert? How do we watch? Keep on watching and pray and keep on praying. A few thoughts. First, know your enemy. Hey, wise up. Pay attention. Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He is a schemer. He is a schemer. We're not unaware of his schemes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're paying attention to him. Why? Because he has had thousands of years to watch human behavior. We better be a student of the way that he works. How does he work? He lies. That's all that he does. He lies. It may be a slight bending of the truth, but it's always deceit. And there are certain lies that you may have believed for a long time. There are certain vulnerabilities that you have about yourself, about others, friends, family, a spouse, about God. There are patterns of lies that Satan has told to you and you've heard them so often you think that they're true. And you need to understand he is lying to you. You need to identify the lies that Satan has spoken to you. He deceives. He divides God's people. He wants to separate you from fellowship because if he can do so, you will fail. You need the body of Christ. That's how God designed things. Know your enemy. Study the way that he works. Know yourself. Where are your particular vulnerabilities? Because he will come in and exploit them. When Jesus went into the wilderness, where did Satan start? He said, I bet that you're hungry. Let me, make, let me tempt you to make stones into bread. He's going to target your vulnerability, the lies that you have believed, the different uh, aspects of your own flesh that are patterns, some inherited, some practiced. As Jesus said to the disciples, look, watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit will make great resolve, but your flesh, not as Paul conceives of flesh, but as your physical body, that you have 
vulnerabilities that are patterns in your life. Know yourself and know where you are vulnerable. Third, know your weapons. There are four that you have been given. The first is the word of God. Use the word of God to direct your prayer life. To identify the lies that you have believed and fight them with truth. Second, the people of God. If you are not in fellowship now, get in fellowship. Students, when you graduate and you leave, don't search forever for a church. Search for a few weeks and land and be there and be in fellowship. I've seen student after student after student get crushed by Satan because they search, they search, they search for a church, they get discouraged, they slow down, they stop, and within a year, they're out. You need the people of God. The Spirit of God translating your prayers and empowering you to pray. And then fourth, the attention of God. Do you know you have the attention of God? Do you know that God right now really longs to hear you speak to him? Even more than we want to speak with our heavenly father, he is there waiting. The image of the father and the prodigal son was given to us. It's a wonderful, beautiful gift. There is the father standing, gazing on the horizon, waiting waiting for us to come. You have the attention of the creator of the universe. He is saying, come to me, speak to me, be with me. Jesus knew that he was entering into extreme spiritual warfare. And so what did he do? He laid it all out before the father. Disciples missed the point. So they slept and they failed. Here's the good news. We can learn because they learned. I'll leave you with one verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is after Jesus has risen, but before the Spirit has been given. It says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Ah, they got it, right? Right? Okay, we've just done a little series on prayer. Let's just pack that up. Put it in our notebook of talks on prayer. Never think about it again. Or we can say, no, God gave us a moment. He gave us four weeks together to think on this so that this year we could grow in prayer. We could make progress in prayer. Someone asks us next year, how's your prayer life? We say, well, maybe not great, but it's growing. It's moving forward. I'm learning to speak with God. I'm learning to hear his voice. As we close, I want us to take a few moments just to practice. Okay, let's take a few moments silently. And let's ask God particularly to remind us that we are constantly under attack and to teach us to be continually vigilant before him. Hey, let's take a few moments silently in prayer and then I will close us. Father, I pray that these lessons on prayer would sink deeply into our minds and our hearts and our wills to change our patterns of behavior so that we would begin to pray more honestly before you, more persistently and energetically. We would pray more submissively, trusting you as as we lay our entire lives out in front of you. Whether you say yes, no, wait, that we would trust you to accomplish your good and perfect will. I pray, Father, that we would learn how desperately we need to be with you. Father, I pray that you transform this body of believers as we learn to pray more like Jesus prayed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your conversation with God this week.